Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Back in 2008, you remember 2008? It's like 13 years ago, you know, back when, back when life was good. And um, that was honestly before, you know, uh, social media really got, got started off. And I think MySpace was like the only thing that was really around back then and everything. Uh, everything just kind of, you know, back in the good old days of 2008, right? Back in 2008, there was a guy named Al Jacobs, and he wrote this book entitled The Year of Living Biblically. Now, this book is not what you would call a Christian book. It doesn't fall into the Christian genre. Uh, but matter of fact, Jacobs, the author, he says he identifies identifies as actually an agnostic who grew up in a very secular home where God was not mentioned. There was not a whole lot of mention of faith or, or anything. Well, he wrote this book and he wrote in the book and he says, I describe myself as officially Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way that Olive Garden is, can be called an Italian restaurant. Uh, Y'all know that, uh, you know, Olive Garden is not authentic Italian, right? Um, The book is an autobiographical sketch about this secular guy living in New York city with no religious upbringing who decides to basically pick up the Bible And for the next year of his life, he is going to live his life, no questions asked, by every command and every word that is written in the Bible. So he starts in the book of Genesis, and the month of January, he spends the entire month reading through the entire Bible, cover to cover, which, by the way, for an agnostic to do, is something that a lot of self-professing Christians have not even done yet read the Bible cover to cover. So kudos to him for doing that. As he went through that, he wrote down every command and every directive that the Bible contained, and he said, this will be the list that I live by for the next year of my life. And some of it's kind of humorous. Him attempting to live, especially by some of the Old Testament laws and Old Testament commands, it really ends up being kind of humorous. And matter of fact, this has kind of turned into something more than a book. He ended up doing a TED Talk, and he's had a lot of YouTube hits on uh, his YouTube channel because he videotapes some of the more humorous things. It actually turned into a sitcom for a little while that only lasted for like a season before it got canceled. But some of the things that were included in the book and some of the things that he did, Leviticus, by the way, says this, that men should leave the edges of their beards unshaven. And all the, all the hipsters said amen to that, right? Uh, should leave the edges of their beards unshaven. So Jacob stops shaving, his, uh, shaving and he ends up with his massive beard and eventually kind of looks like a member of the band ZZ Top. He stops wearing clothes made of any mixed fibers or fabrics. It's kind of hard to find that these days. He starts playing a ten-stringed harp and he finds himself somehow a psaltery and a timbrel, kind of like the book of Psalms says to do. This is where it gets kind of awkward socially. He refuses to shake hands with women who he fears might be ceremonially unclean, for lack of a better word, which had to be really socially awkward. I mean, how can you tell if they're ceremonially unclean or not? Um, So he also tries, this is the best one, he also tries to fling tiny pebbles at people walking out of like... Uh, adult bookstores and places like that, he, he throws little pebbles at people so he can stone adulterers. So this is what this guy does so he can try to follow all this. this. This whole process, they finally interviewed his wife after the book came out. His wife said, I about left him about 20 times, but he kept reminding me that divorce was illegal. So I couldn't do it, right? So over time, Jacobs gained this notoriety for his experiment, and we laugh at this, but here's the thing. As Christians, we're supposed to be people of the book, Right? We're supposed to follow the Word of God. 
And in the Word of God, especially in the Old Testament, we see these laws. Don't shave. Don't shake hands with people who you think are unclean. Stone adulterers. And then Jesus goes on and he says, if you've even thought about somebody with lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. Let me ask you this. Is there any of us, any of us, if we follow to the letter of the law and we're held accountable by the letter of the law of God, any of us who would still be standing and breathing? None of us would. And I think, you know what? This kind of shows us how a lot of people view the word of God, the laws of God, the expectation of God, and honestly, the Ten Commandments specifically, because those are like the top ten. Those are the ones that we really, really talk about, right? This is how a lot of people view the Ten Commandments in our society. They're harsh. They're antiquated. You can't keep up with them. And they're impossible to keep. And you know what the truth is? They are impossible to keep. It's like God's system is already bent against us. Well, I would argue that he didn't create it bent against us, but eventually it came to that place after we sinned and defied God in the one law that he had, which was not to eat the fruit. Back then, only one law existed, don't eat the fruit. We ate the fruit, and guess what? We got over 600 laws and commands in the Word of God to try to picture the expectation of what God's holiness is. And it reveals something that following God's law to perfection is impossible to do. And I'll be honest with you. This is kind of the way... Younger Derek, teenage Derek, childhood Derek, and even into my 20s, this is the way I viewed my personal walk with Christ. I was saved. I trusted Christ as my only way to heaven, but I convinced myself that the only way to get God to really like me was to make sure that I followed more laws than I broke. And it gave me this view of God as this guy in heaven who's just looking at me, waiting for me to fail so he can like lower the boom on me. But that's not the view of salvation, folks. That's not the view of following Christ. Laws don't lead to righteousness. Laws lead us to the one who is our righteousness. And that's the point of the Ten Commandments. And that's kind of the point of the series that we're going to be looking at. The goal of this series is to kind of set this perspective that it's the opposite of what the Ten Commandments are actually wanting. What we many times look at the Ten Commandments and what the secular world looks at the Ten Commandments and thinks is, God wants me to follow this in order to be a good person. The Ten Commandments are not there for that. It's actually in reverse. And I told you this morning that we were going to start at Exodus 20. I lied. See, therefore I already broke one of the commandments. We're actually going to start in Deuteronomy this morning. We're going to get to Exodus 20, so keep your finger there. And flip over a few more books to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. The word Deuteronomy actually means second law. So what it is, is the book of Deuteronomy is actually kind of a rehashing or a retelling of the law which was already given in Exodus. And here we get an understanding of the purpose of the commandments. And we're only going to deal with the Ten Commandments during the series. There are way more commandments, but these are the ten that we're going to deal with. But here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse number 20. He says this, when your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of these decrees, these statutes, and these ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? You will tell him, we were once slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Before our eyes, the Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt, on Pharaoh, and on all his household. But he brought us from there in order to lead us in and give us the land that he swore to our ancestors. God keeps his promises. The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our prosperity always and for our preservation as it is today. So what we see here in this passage is an understanding that the Ten Commandments were not given to Israel to put them into this new slavery. They'd just gotten out of slavery. It wasn't to put them into a new servitude and a new slavery under the bondage of a new master. 
The slavery that ultimately comes as a result of abandoning God's desire and plan for our good is when we disobey God and when we turn from Him and we walk away from Him. See, that's what slavery is. The law of God leads us to freedom. The law of God leads us to the one who is and gives us our freedom. And this is the big idea of the entire series is this, is that the Ten Commandments are the best tool for us to use when examining the condition of our hearts. See, how in the world does that work? The Ten Commandments are the best tool that we can use when we want to examine the condition of our hearts. What does the Bible say about our hearts? The heart is desperately wicked. The heart will play tricks on us. The heart will deceive us. The heart will go by emotion and feeling when our faith should run by the facts and the reason that God has promised and he makes good on our promises. So what we're going to see in this series is that the Ten Commandments are really the best way for us to like take a heart check. They're the key to finding our purpose in life, our fulfillment in life, and even finding eternal life. So in this introductory message of the series this morning, we're not going to dive into the commandments themselves, but we're going to see four things that the Ten Commandments reveal that we often miss. There's four things when we consider the Ten Commandments. How many of you have the Ten Commandments posted somewhere in your house? All right, a lot of you do. We have, I think we have two sets posted in our house now, okay? And that's not a bad thing. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But when you look at the Ten Commandments, they're supposed to reveal something. When you consider the Ten Commandments, they're supposed to reveal something to us that we oftentimes miss. And number one, the, the Ten Commandments reveal how God intended for things to go. When you look at these ten laws, and you look at these ten rules, and you look at these ten, these ten commandments, it reveals God's expectation for humanity. This is what was in God's mind and heart when he created us, when he created Adam and Eve, when he created Eden, and it was perfect, and it was beautiful, and there was no sin. This was God's picture of what humanity should be like. And when you look at the ten commandments, you're like, man, if none of this stuff that he's talking about doing existed, man, life would be good. If there wasn't such a thing as murder, if there wasn't such a thing as adultery, if there wasn't such a thing as theft, if there wasn't such a thing as idolatry, man, everything would be wonderful. But the problem is, we broke all that. We messed that up. We go against that. See, God is the designer of all of creation. I know that there are a lot of people today who say it is archaic and uneducated to say that God created everything that we see and that we are designed by a designer, but the Bible tells us here that we are intricately woven together and designed by a creator. And when someone designs it, he designs it for a purpose. And he also has a certain order. So now let's go back to the book of Exodus. Okay, remember Deuteronomy was reviewing the law. Now we get to the book of Exodus and we're going to see how the law came about and how it came to be. Now, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. All five of those books are a five-volume set from, from the man named Moses, who God inspired to write these, and they all contain the law, they contain the history of the Jewish people up, up until the, the covenant, and a little bit after that as well, how Israel came to be a nation, and how they came to be God's chosen people, and what he expected of them. So as we get into Exodus, we begin to see these laws. Genesis is all about his creation and all these things. And we see that Moses describes creation in the first couple of chapters. And he creates this world with heavens and the earth and plant life and man. And he breathes life into man. And the Bible uses this one word over and over and over again to describe the, the quality of God's creation. Does anybody remember what it was? He says he saw that it was good. It tells us that anything God does, anything that God creates, all of God's purposes, his plans, and his creations are good. 
are good. Did God mess it up? No. When God makes something, it's good, it's perfect, it's whole, it's complete. We end up messing it up. We chip away at it with our sin. So what do we have? The Bible also uses this word shalom, which means a peace that just washes over you. So we had goodness, we had creation, we had shalom. We had the Garden of Eden, and then all of a sudden man destroys this shalom. He destroys the goodness, not by hurting God, but by sinning and disobeying God and walking outside of God's plan for their shalom. See, sin wasn't God just getting mad at them. God didn't curse them just because he was mad at them and wanted to prove he was bigger than them. He had to curse them because they stepped outside of his protection of the law of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. They stepped outside of shalom and therefore outside of shalom, outside of the will of God is cursing and death. So the Abrahamic covenant comes. God chooses to save the world through the descendants of Abraham who would be called the children of Israel. And God allows them to fall in slavery. Ironically, God allows them, after choosing them, allows them to fall into slavery for 400 years. And you might say, well, why would God allow his chosen people to ever let something bad happen to them? Well, if you go back and you read about Israel and you read about the people, they are pagan worshipers. They moved away from God. Again, just like Adam and Eve, they wandered away from Shalom. They wandered away from the peace of God. And here's this. This slavery that they sat in, in Egypt, is meant to be a picture, by the way, of humanity's slavery to sin. And then all of a sudden, Moses is sent to deliver Israel. After 425 years, God sends a stuttering, soft-spoken, insecure man named Moses to deliver Israel. If you've watched the movie The Ten Commandments, that is not a very accurate representation, probably, of the way Moses approached Pharaoh. When Charlton Heston walks in there, man, and he's just, you know, he's huge, he's buff, and he's just commanding the room. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. That's not how it went. It's more like Moses walking in and saying, Pharaoh, God said you better let his people go now. You want to do that. And then he throws a stick down and turns into a snake and all kinds of stuff. And then we have the ten plagues. And those ten plagues were meant to grab Pharaoh's attention, which each time his heart hardened every time those plagues happened. Pharaoh's unconvinced and he says, no, I'm not letting those people go. Why in the world? By the way, I'm hot. I'm just, I'm not trying to start anything Sorry about that. Stacy told me I would sweat this morning if I wore that. And I didn't listen to her. Always listen to your wife. That was one of my resolutions and I broke them. Anyway, all right, back to this. Pharaoh says, I'm not letting these people go. Why would I let the backbone on which I've built my economy, why would I let that go? Why would I let that just walk out the door? And this is an application that we need to understand. Human prosperity is almost always built at the expense of someone else's, at the expense of someone else. The ten plagues were then spread upon Egypt. God sends ten plagues to finally convince Pharaoh to obey his command. And aside from them being a great display of God's power, that's what we often look at. We think, man, water turned into blood, frogs, boils, flies, death angel, man. God is huge and God is powerful. I want to be on his team so I can win every time. We're missing the clear picture of what it is. See, the ten commandments are actually an unraveling of what God created in Genesis. When the water turned to blood, all the sea life died. The frogs were the only things really that could get out of there, out of the, out of the Nile. And so they kind of came out there, which was the second plague. And then when they began to die off because they didn't have a good water source, then there were gnats and flies and then pestilence and disease followed all of that. It just destroyed the ecosystem that they were enjoying there. You see, it went to show us this lesson 
that when we step outside of God's orders and we step outside of God's desires, life unravels. You ever found that happen? You know God's saying is go here, and you say, no, I'm going to go over here, and then when all of a sudden life starts unraveling, we wonder why. Well, because it's been told to us ever since the book of Genesis that when we defy God, our life will unravel. Humanity unravels outside of God's plan. So now we come to the book of Exodus, and the Israelites have been freed from Egypt, and we set out to a new land, and God has promised and prepared for them, and after about three months of traveling, we come to chapter 19, and here's what it says. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, in the third month, from the very day that the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Ephedim, they came to the Sinai wilderness, and they camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain of God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And he said, this is what you must say to the house of Jacob, and explain to the Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Note that he didn't say, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, if you don't want that to happen to you, follow me. He doesn't intimidate, what does he say? You saw what I did to the Egyptians, and I did that so that I could bring you out of slavery. So that I could bring you to myself. Now, if you will care, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you'll be my own possession. Out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation, these are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So then if you skip down to chapter 20, and we'll see verses 1 and 2. Moses goes, goes and he says all this to the Israelites, and then the Israelites say, hey, I want you to go up into the mountain and, and talk to God for us, because we can't approach him on our own. And so he goes into the mountain, and Moses is there, and it says, God spoke all these words, and he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. As we read this in a New Testament age, it could read to us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of sin and death, who brought you out of this place of slavery. So we see here that God encourages the people of Israel to follow him and obey him because he's chosen them and appointed them for great things and to be his people. In other words, you're no longer slaves, you're no longer vagabonds, you are my holy, chosen, redeemed, blessed people. And then gives the commandments to Moses as a way to restore the goodness, restore the peace, restore the shalom that Adam and Eve had messed up all those years ago. Isn't that beautiful? It wasn't that God is saying, all right, man, we're going to set up this new nation. I'm going to set up this government, a bunch of laws for you to follow. And if you don't follow, you're going to go to jail and you're going to have all these things happen. That's the way we view government and law today. Government and law is something to just keep us in check. God's laws was not something to keep us in check. It was something to keep us in favor with him and walking with him. And it was for our shalom and for our peace. So we have to understand that God's commandments restore God's goodness to us. He took them out of slavery, and he set them up, and he gave them peace and freedom. And this true freedom would remain in the context of God's will. Remember what Deuteronomy said, the, co the commandments are good for his prosperity and for sustaining life. See, these commands tell us that our relationship with God, how it was supposed to work. That we're supposed to worship him and him only. That we're not supposed to have idols. That we're supposed to approach worship with an attitude of reverence. And when we disobey them, life gets dysfunctional. That's what happens. So the next thing we have to understand is that human nature is to reject what is good for what seems good. That's what we do. We take a lot of what God says is good, and we reject those things and say, well, I, I see something better. I see something that offers me something a little bit more. And I think we see that happening today in our culture, don't we? 
We know what God's word says. We know it says that he's our God and we're his people. And we're living for a world that is not our home. And we oftentimes get so buried down into what's going on today, thinking that that's our only hope. It is not. God is our shalom. His ways are our peace. You may look at these laws and you may say, that doesn't seem that way to me. It doesn't seem like it's my peace. It seems like slavery. It seems like I got to do all this stuff that nobody else in the world is doing, man. I feel like a freak when I follow some of these laws, kind of like that guy in the book when I follow the Ten Commandments. It's because we have this assumption that if it doesn't feel good while I do it, it must be wrong. Anybody ever have that assumption? That's why I can't diet. I'll just say that. All right, because I get hungry. I'm hungry when I diet and it doesn't feel good. So it must be wrong for me. Like, I know it's wrong to live on cheeseburgers and pizza, but it feels better than arugula and kale. At least I feel full, right? But then when I sit down with my cardiologist and he says, dude, you're killing yourself. And I'm like, but it feels good while I'm doing it. Must be right. When the alarm goes off in the morning, your body tells you, just lay here. Don't get up. But you know that if you keep laying there, you're going to start losing relationships. You're not going to get to school on time, which means you're not going to graduate. It means you're not going to get a job. I'm not talking to any particular child in here at all. But, uh, you know, when, when, <laughs> when it comes up, you can't make it to work. You don't get to keep your job. And then you don't get to, do, you know, it's, it's not what feels good, but it is what's right to do. We know we don't lie. I don't, how many of you, like, like, honestly, it feels good to exercise? Especially when I'm getting to the age I'm getting to now. I'm like, it doesn't feel good. It especially doesn't feel good the day after. It really doesn't. But I have to think about it. It's also not going to feel good laying in a hospital bed, you know, in a few more years not being able to move. And then some people will go out and they'll even go to the stream. They'll go and hire people to yell at them while they're working out to keep them motivated. How sick is that? Right? We mess things up. But here's the problem. Here's why we do this. We do this because we know that there's a disconnect between what our mind knows and what our body often screams to us. And here's the thing. We give more credence and we take more responsibility with our bodies, hopefully, oftentimes than we do with our own souls. We'll do that with our bodies, but then we'll approach our spiritual life in a, if it feels good, do it kind of thing. And that's the level that we're at within our society, within our culture today, and often within our churches as well. I'm going to let that sit and marinate just for a second. Why do we understand to do this with the body, but not expect to do it with the soul? We'll follow all the medical advice that the doctors have studied, and they know the body well, but God designed our souls and our spirits. He knows it better than we. But every time we see a command of God and we see something that God says, we say, ah, oh, but hold on for a second. Is that really the way it should be, God? All of a sudden, we're the experts on our own souls. So God's commandment reveals how God intends for things to go for us. And by the way, the way he intends for them to go is best for us. The second thing that we see this morning is the Ten Commandments reveal God's nature to us. See, these things are hard to follow. These things are unreasonable. These things are unattainable for me. You're right, they are unattainable for us. That's why they reveal God's nature to us who is holy. This is actually the whole point of the book of Exodus. We see the books of the law and we think, oh, it's just a book of rules, setting the foundation for a government and a nation. And yes, by, in some ways it is that, but the book of Exodus is really written so that the people of God could get to know their God. Because until then it was just stories, it was just things that they had been told and time has gone by, but now they could have a relationship. Exodus exists so that you may know God better. Next time you're reading through the book of Exodus, re read it with that in mind. 
It's going to help me get to know God better as I read through this. The main point and the focus of Exodus is God introducing himself to his people. The commandments reflect his character, his face, and his holiness. And the commandments are a response to the beauty and the majesty of God and to the complete holiness of who he is. The law that is given in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers is so pure and so holy because it shows us who God is as pure and holy. Because our entire Christian existence is actually a response to God. When we follow God's laws, we are responding to him through our existence. You see, worship is a response to him. That's obvious. But repentance is also a response to his majesty and his purity. Belief and faith is a response to his promises. And even what we do in evangelism, what we do in ministry here at the church, is a response to the commands that he has given for us to go and to tell and to make disciples. There are a way of communing with God and with relating to him. See, the New Testament apostles and the writers understood this well. Peter said this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all of your conduct. You get that? He said, He has called you to be holy. Be holy like He is. Know His nature and reflect Him. John said this in 1 John. He says, Dear friends, we are God's children now. And, that we will, <clears throat> and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let me ask you a question. Would you agree that Jesus is our greatest hope? Would you agree? I believe that the events of this week in Washington shows us just how destructive, how cultic, and how idolatrous it is when we place our hopes in anything less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness and his work for us on the cross. It does. Because if Jesus is our only hope as his followers, as his children, we have to be careful to put so much in people and things and programs and governments and all. And I'm not saying destroy the government and don't follow. And dis I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying listen to what Jesus said. Render to Caesar. Follow and pray for your, pray for your leaders. But as you do that, pray understanding that they are also subservient and subjective to the God who sits on the throne. Just as much as we are. See, he's our greatest hope. We should desire to be like him. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says. He says this. He says, what you pursue will reveal what your true prize is. I think Jesus said it better, right? He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? But if you're most pursuing career success and a six-digit salary, early retirement, material possessions, then that shows that you prize money. What you prize most is God. It's going to show up in whether or not you pursue purity, whether you pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. Here's what Paul said, Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God, as dearly loved children. Children love to imitate their parents. They really do. I love the kids here at Graceway. They're so sweet, and I'm, I've missed them a lot. We've really missed our Sunday school class, and I was so excited when there was a little girl who returned today, came in, and you know what she did? She gave me this little drawing that she drew for me on the way here to church. It says, Pastor Derek, it's got a Bible and a cross on it and everything. I'm like, dude, that is so sweet. Kids, for some reason, they think we're okay. <laughs> and then they grow up and they find out, man, these people are messed up. Right? He says, be imitators of God, just like dear children. Trust God. Imitate him in everything you do. See, God's not after our obedience. He's after a new kind of obedience. We don't obey simply because we feel guilty or we're afraid of his wrath. Here's the thing. If you'd rather, 
if you'd rather sin, but you don't because you're just afraid of what somebody might find out, or you're afraid that God's going to catch you and He's going to punish you, then you're not necessarily following Him for the right reason. Again, it's not about what we do, it's about the heart that we do it with. As a parent, I don't have to be told, don't abuse your kids. Sometimes I have to be restrained from doing so. No, I'm just teasing. I don't have to be told, don't abuse your kids. Don't try to give them away. I don't have to be told uh, not to encourage them to play in traffic. If there was a manual that said this, I'd be like, I don't need the manual because I already love them enough. Not to, it's just natural instinct for me not to do this. I love them, therefore, I want to protect them. This is the new obedience that is one that is driven by understanding that if I love God, I don't want to do anything that brings harm to his name or brings any kind of, 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 of delineation to his name. It's the attitude that David had in the Psalms. I delight to do your will and your instruction is deep within me. So the commandments reveal that God, who he is to us and to obey him and to be like him. And the next, and the next two points are going to be rather quick. But the second thing is this, is that, or the third thing is this, is that the Ten Commandments reveal our hearts. They don't just reveal God's nature, but they reveal our hearts. God's nature is holy, is righteous. Guess what man's nature is? As far away from that as possible. Because that's what we've done in our sin. We've walked away from a holy God. So our hearts are bent against God and His commandments. If you look honestly at these commandments, the first thing you notice is that your heart's desire is to question them. What we often do, and what many people do, especially those who aren't maybe churched and know that they're not supposed to say, well, I don't agree with that. They'll say, well, I don't agree with that. Because our hearts in our flesh are bent away from God. We may fool ourselves, and we may give lip service to the fact that they're good and that they're beautiful and that they reveal a God that I delight to worship. But at the core of who we are, is that really who we are? So let's go through these really, really fast. And I want you to kind of put yourself to the test. Law number one, have no other gods before me and worship only me. Can you honestly say I have never put anything before God in my life? Can you honestly say that? I've never loved or trusted or obeyed anything more than God. Go to <laughs> there you go. Well, they're doing good now, so uh, let's keep that down. Uh, God and God alone has always been preeminent in my thoughts and my affections and my actions. Can we honestly say that? That was number one and two. Number three is, God says, don't take my name in vain. Can you honestly say, I've always held the name of God, which signifies his character in highest respect, invoking his name only with thoughtfulness and with reverence. I've never used his name as a swear word. We'll stop right there just for a second. I've never been lethargic or apathetic during my worship. I've never desecrated God's name by calling myself his follower, but not representing him well. In the way I talk, the way I act, the way I spend money, the way I drive, does it give honor to the God that I have on my bumper sticker? Number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Do I always, whether in my time or my money, do I always set aside part of it to worship and honor God? At least 10% of my income, at least one day of my week, do I remember it to keep it holy? Number five, honor your parents. Can I say I've always been submissive to my parents and to other authorities in my life? I've always given them honor and willing obedience whether they were not watching anyone. Whether my parents didn't see me, my teachers didn't see me, my tra the traffic cops, the IRS, my government. It says don't kill. Oh good, I haven't done this one, right? And hopefully no one in here has done that, right? Everybody's scooting over if you're raising your hand, if you're wondering. Not so fast. How many of you would say this? I've never had a murderous thought about somebody. I've never had hateful thoughts or have taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm done to another human being. Not to my boss, not to my in-laws, not even to my enemies. 
I've never looked at someone who was a menace in my life and thought they'd be better off dead. Don't commit adultery. How many of you can say I've never had sex with someone that is not my spouse? Furthermore, I've never fantasized about it with somebody that I'm not married with. I've never looked lustfully upon someone. Number eight, don't steal. Many of you would probably say I've never taken anything that doesn't belong to me. Are you sure? I've never taken credit for something that didn't belong to me. I've never cheated in school or on my taxes, hint, hint. I've never downloaded illegal music. I've never wasted my company's time by surfing on the internet. I've never spent my time Twittering and Facebooking when I should be working. I'm always willing to take only what I've earned. How are we doing so far? Don't lie. Do we even need to go there? Don't covet. Yeah, I've always been completely satisfied with my station in life. I've never been greedy for the abilities that I have or the looks or the position of somebody else. When someone gets a blessing that I don't get, I'm not jealous. I always rejoice with him. And I've never not once complained about what God has provided for me. I've always just trusted him and been satisfied with what he gave to me. How'd you do? If that was a test, I'll tell you this. Derek's test at the top has a big fat red F on it because I've broken every single one of these commandments. And that was after I was saved, not just before. See, the law reveals that our heart, even though it is saved, can still be desperately wicked. And then we constantly have to keep ourselves in check by the Spirit of God. This is what the law reveals about our heart. We often say, oh, I'm a pretty good person. But where are you measuring that up to? A lot of us say, I'm a pretty good person compared to the guy sitting next to me. I'm a pretty good person compared to the guy who voted for the other guy than I did. I'm a pretty good person compared to the person who, at work who doesn't do as good of a job as I do. That's not the standard. The standard is God's holiness. One day we're going to stand before God and he's not going to say, you know what, you were better off than Johnny. So I'm going to let you into heaven. No, he's going to say, were you better than my son, Jesus Christ? Because that's the only standard, folks. That's the only standard. And all of us will have to stand there in complete honesty and say, I broke every single one of them. And I'll have to stand there, having pled the blood of Jesus, saying, I broke every single one of them. And you know what he will say? The difference is you have the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, over you, blotting out that sin. I don't see your sin anymore. I see my son and his grace. Welcome in my child. But if you do not have Christ, you do not have hope. It reveals the condition of our heart, and that's what moves us to the last point. It reveals the need for the work of Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments reveal the urgent need for the work of Jesus Christ. See, if all of the sermon were what I just said, it'd be terrible. I'd be like, man, what's the purpose? If all I am is broken, thanks for sending me into this lesson of condemnation, but I want to pronounce hope to you. And his name is Jesus. See, the Ten Commandments can't change you. Following the laws can't change you. I spend a lot of time talking about how the laws and how the commandments help us better reflect the nature of God. They help us know God better. They help reveal who we are. But the problem is that our sinful hearts are bent against all of that. And even if we follow all the commandments to the letter, we're still bent against God in our nature. Because many of us, if we were to follow every one of God's laws, we would do so with a doubtful heart saying, this makes no sense to me. I don't understand why I'm doing this. I'm only doing this so that I can have what I want in the end. And that's not a heart that is, cha that is changed by God. Since we are still in our nature, we are unchanged. 
and still in our sin. The commandments reveal our need for grace. Looking at these commandments is really meant to scream to us, you're not good enough. You need help. And Galatians chapter 3 says this, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the law then in verse number 24 was our guardian until Christ so we could be justified by faith. In the King James Version that word guardian means schoolmaster. It means our teacher. It's someone who brings to light a knowledge that otherwise we hadn't seen. He said the law is to bring to light a knowledge that we are broken and undone without God. We have the artwork of the Ten Commandments in our house. Some of you all said that you all have that too, right? We've seen people fight over whether the commandments should be on public courthouses, and I think that's all well and good, but here's what those images should invoke when we see them. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 3. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. These commandments are not there just to be a monument to a better time. These commandments are not there just to list out a list of rules for us to follow. These commandments are there to reveal that we need Jesus. There are commandments that are there to reveal a big fat F at the top of the test, and that were it not for the grace of God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's the challenge. Go ahead and display the Ten Commandments. Just make sure that the cross is in the same picture. It's incomplete without the cross of Jesus Christ. See, we obey because we're accepted, not to be accepted. And this is what makes Christianity completely different. And as we get ready to move to invitation right now, and our musician comes and gets ready to go. The question that I have to ask as we're finishing is, why am I obeying? Why am I trying to do all of these things? Why do I try to live righteously and holy in this present world? Is it to prove a point? Is it to feel better than those who don't? Because if that happens, what we'll do, we won't love those who don't obey. We'll hate them. We'll judge them. I don't live my life so I can feel better than the other person. I live my life in, in, in obedience to his commands because it makes me more like him. And when I look at those who don't, and when I look at those who are lost, it makes me cry in love rather than ridicule and judgment. See, I don't obey in order to be accepted. I'm already accepted. I'm good. That means I can spend the rest of my life as a child of God worrying about those who haven't been yet. Remember what our text says. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. In other words, I've already saved you. You're good. You don't need to do any more. You're my child. That's what salvation screams to us. I've already purchased your pardon. I've already made you mine when I brought you out of Egypt. He didn't say this. He didn't say when they were in slavery. He didn't come to them while they were still in Egypt and say, all right, here's my Ten Commandments. If you can follow like six of them 70% of the time, I'll come and let you out in a few days. No, he didn't do that. Why? Because if he had given the commandments when they were still in slavery, he, they would have thought that they got out because they obeyed the commandments, not because God brought them out by his hand and his power. 
And this is why the law can't save us. This is why I don't obey God in order to accept him, be accepted by him. I, or I obey God because I have been accepted by him. And it wasn't until like my mid-30s before I finally got that through my thick skull. So guys, I'm preaching this passionately, not because of any other reason that this has made a big difference in my life. You don't have to keep spinning and, and, and working and doing all this so God will love me more. He already loves me more than he ever will. You're already accepted, and this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion out there. In all of the other religions, in all of the other isms, in all of that, even in agnosticism, you have to keep doing things in order to be accepted. Only in Christianity do you find, I do things because I am accepted. Every other religion, you have to sacrifice so that God will come to you. Only in Christianity did you find that God came to us and sacrificed so that we could come to him. This is why Jesus cannot be adulterated. This is why a true, clear picture of the gospel must be preached at all times by his people. God won't love you more because you obey. He loves you and accepts you so that you will be obedient. So here's the quick review as we go to our invitation this morning. The Ten Commandments reveal how God intended everything to work. They review the nature of God that he is holy, and they review our heart that it is not. And it also reviews the urgent need for Jesus Christ. So the question is, what do I do? How do I respond to this? How do I respond to what the Ten Commandments reveal to me? Understand you need God. There will never be a point in your life where you will say, I don't need God anymore. I've reached a point where I'm on my own. It doesn't work that way. Your life is falling apart because you think it's best run with you in charge. Like a little Pharaoh who's afraid to give up control. Who thinks you've already got it as good as you can have it now. With God, you have no idea how good it can be. And it also says that we need a Savior. Because I can't follow God's law. I can only fall on my face before the one who redeems. Have you done that? Watching this morning, have you received Jesus as your Savior? If you haven't, let today be the day that you call upon him. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But here's this. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't deserve it. I don't even come close to deserving it. And neither do you. But he offers it because he loves and because he wants to call us to himself. He's calling now. The question is, will you answer? And as we bow our heads and we close our eyes and we go into a time of prayer, that's the question this morning. Number one, do you know the God of the Ten Commandments? Do you know him as your heavenly father? Do you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ today? If you have not, let today be the day that you follow Jesus. Let today be the day that you abandon all the efforts and all the stuff and just say, Lord, I repent of the fact that I'm a sinner. I, I'm, I stop trying to cover it up. I stop trying to justify it. I trust you as my Savior and I repent. The Bible says if we will call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. If you will call upon Jesus, who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me, he will save you. And once he has saved us, he begins to, to grow us and begins to mature us and begins to take us into a place where we become to know him more. 
We see his faithfulness. We see his goodness. We do see his law that begins to set us free from the bondage of sin. And we no longer obey in order to be accepted, which will never work. We obey because we already have been accepted, which we never deserved. So this morning, I don't know how God is speaking to you. I know how he spoke to me this week. Just reaffirmed what I had, have really just been living in for the past five to six years now. Is that I can't be enough, but God is. Will you trust him? Heavenly Father, I pray you'll have your time and will and way in this invitation. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.